Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It is another episode of The Lit Review, and it's actually our last one of season four. So here we are. It is actually just me for this introduction, so I'm one of your hosts, Paige. Monica is very much present for the larger conversation that we have with our incredible guest of this episode. So the name, it's might be familiar to you if you are here in Chicago, Maya Duke-Masova, hands down my favorite reporter. I first met her as a reporter from the Chicago Reader. She now is actually a senior reporter for Injustice Watch. And Maya just sets the bar and makes it so clear what is possible for reporters who are ethical and have integrity and take seriously their responsibility as a reporter when covering movement and struggle and resistance and protest. She is just phenomenal. And Maya, if you're listening, can we please be friends? It'll become clear in just a few moments when you start hearing her talk. You're going to want to follow up this episode by actually going in and reading some of her work because what she's covered, such fascinating, interesting, and important, complicated issues. And she does so, so well. I will say this episode is very thorough. Maya has a lot to say and she's very good with words. You can tell she's a writer. We talk a little bit about this one particular company here called Pangea and um, it's a lot. It's And it's a lot not only because of how much she has to say and, um, but also because of the content. It's, it's enraging and it's particularly for me the landlords I mean even just the word I remember at one point in this episode I talk about that it's just it sounds like one of the most archaic gross colonizer words like landlord I hate it and if you don't didn't already if you have a landlord and you hate a landlord or maybe you are a landlord um this will make your blood boil and actually Ma uh, Monica and I had a similar quote that uh, we wanted to, to lift up as just sort of a little bit of a teaser for y'all so at one point Maya had said we have to know how much profit landlords are making off of housing and landlording in poor communities is way more profitable than landlording in rich ones and so I think that's a little bit of a hint of the uh, uh, clearly what we're going to be talking about but what is revealed in in Maya talking about this fantastic book the book we're talking about is evicted poverty and profit in the American city and it's by Matthew Desmond and it sounds really fascinating for so many reasons um, I encourage you all again this is going to be an excellent episode it's super thorough take some notes Support your local library, check out this book, support your independent bookstore, purchase this book, and go back and read the incredible backlog that Maya has left us of her, her writing on this, this subject and so many others. And so I'm just going to, you know, it feels weird Monica's not here, so I just feel like I'm being extra rambly right now. <laughs> Monica, if you haven't caught on, is the one who kind of keeps me like, let's not talk for four hours. Um, and so we're going to cut it off here and get just get into our episode, and I hope you enjoy and looking forward to seeing you all next season and probably a little in between sneak peek as well somewhere in the next few weeks so thank you for tuning in thank you for all of your support thank you for listening and learning with us and asking great questions and you are appreciated and have a wonderful wonderful rest of your day wherever and whenever you are thanks everyone see you soon You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. Shut it down! Shut it down! Open up! 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 Open
must agitate, we must escalate, we must break, we must create, we must abolish, we must transform. I remember it. She was shocked by my help. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Hello, hello. I am so excited by who we have on the show today. Oh my goodness. Uh, it's Maya Dukmasova, who is someone that I just look up to and admire from afar and that I can't believe we get to have on our show right now. We're going to spend an hour chatting about a book. This is just like the nerd out I've been waiting for years for. Uh, anyways, how are you doing, Maya? Thank you for joining us today. <laughs> I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. And the admiration is definitely mutual. I mean, I feel like we've spent a lot of time talking over the years because I cover and write about things you guys are working on and things you guys are organizing around in the city. So I feel like we encounter each other as like journalist and source quite often. Um, and I just always find our conversations like extremely enlightening. I like really appreciate how thoughtful both of you are and what you're doing. So it's like always interesting to um yeah to, to to write about something you're working on and uh yeah and i've i'm a fan of the podcast so i'm really i'm really like flattered that you guys invited me oh yes definitely had to happen yeah you're someone that i personally really trust with helping us to tell the stories of the the work that we're a part of um and i'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more for folks who don't know how amazing you are who are you what do you do and why do you do what you do well so i'm a i'm a journalist the majority of my work i focus kind of on two beats on housing issues and on the courts and that can be in, in as far as the criminal legal system goes um or policing, but basically everything having to do with the legal system, kind of civil and criminal and housing issues, those things have been kind of at the center of my work. And I also cover local social and racial justice movements and feel like that's a part of my beat as well. And the reason I do this is, well, I kind of always wanted to be a journalist when I was uh, still in school and it was always a career I was interested in. And then I moved to Chicago about seven and a half years ago and sort of decided to just try it and, and, and freelanced and then got this job at The Reader. Um, but I think the important thing isn't so much why do I do journalism, but why do I do, why, why do I like working at The Reader and writing for The Reader? And it's because I think that it's the, it's the sort of combination of like offbeat and in-depth type of things that The Reader has historically covered that... Um, I feel like we do a good job of explaining why things are happening, not just breaking news. And I was never a breaking news type of person. I feel like it takes me a lot longer to metabolize information and make sense of things. And I just, it, it disconcerts me to be doing like breaking news reporting because I always feel like I'm not getting the full picture of what's happening. I'm not even sure if I fully understand what's happening. It's so easy to feel kind of manipulated into somebody's spin or propaganda or whatever. So I really like um, writing at the pace that the reader is able to afford um, and doing kind of longer longer term projects and in, in, in depth writing. So yeah, um, and I do it because I don't know. I guess the, the other reason is just that this is like what I can do. It's just, I guess it's kind of my calling. So I'm just very grateful that I'm able to pursue this as a or have this job and pursue this as a career. 
Well, I know we are definitely so grateful that you pursued this as a career and as a life choice. Um, yeah, yeah, so grateful for you. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, the book we're talking about today is called Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. Um, and it was published in 2016. Uh, and it follows eight families in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, which is about an hour and a half away from Chicago, um, that are struggling to keep a roof over their heads. Uh, and has been really praised as a classic and like one of the best nonfiction books of the decade by the New York Times. The author is also the founder of Eviction Lab, which is the first nationwide database of evictions um, to really amplify the issue and also to aid organizers with resources um, in addressing this issue. But back to you, before we dive into the book's content, we want to know first what led you to read this book and why did you choose to talk about it today? Yeah, so I this book came out in 2016. This is my copy of the book, which is uh, which is like an advanced reader's edition, like a me media, you know, a press copy, basically. And even before this, I had already been covering housing-related issues in the city. I mean, some of the first stories I did had to do with, with public housing redevelopment. And I've always been interested in housing issues. And eviction wasn't on my radar at all until I read this book. And it completely blew my mind because it felt like... It was opening like a whole new avenue of like research and reporting. And it felt like it was about issues that are much more salient right now in the world of housing. Because I feel like, you know, up until like the early 2000s, basically, the conversation around like affordable housing and housing for poor people and urban housing issues was always revolving around public housing. And that's what most journalists focused on this. Um, focused on like the mismanagement of public housing and the corruption at the you know in the in the bureaucracy and what the federal government was doing about it blah 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 but most people don't live in subsidized housing don't live in public housing and they never have and so what this book got at was it just felt like it was kind of opening a window into what most people's experiences when they are renter low-income renters basically the editor that I was speaking with at the time, I remember they said, well, why, you know, why is this even something worth caring about? Like people are evicted because they don't pay the rent. And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of it. But as people read this book and including that editor and other, just the nation basically got engaged with this book and its primary argument, which is that eviction is not a, just a symptom of poverty. It's, it's a cause of poverty. It's a major cause of poverty and neighborhood instability across the country. So this was like in 2016 or kind of late 2016 when I first was like, okay, let me see what's happening with eviction in Chicago. I was completely blown away by the fact that there was like no reporting about eviction issues. Like the previous time there was like a kind of even a cluster of news articles about anything having to do with eviction was during the 2008 foreclosure crisis when homeowners were being evicted because they were foreclosed on. But in terms of like eviction of renters and how that impacts people and neighborhoods, there was just nothing on it at all. So I felt like, okay, so I got, you know, this is what I'm gonna start doing. And really, yeah, this this book, I think a lot of journalists across the country that write that write about eviction now started writing about it because of because of this book. And I think what's particularly important and powerful about it too is that it it quantifies the problem and qualifies it and in the end of the book there's like a section that's kind of like about solutions like what could we do with this problem and there's 
a limited number of ideas that are explored in that section. Um, Desmond's, I think, particularly preferred solution to the problem was like, we need to treat housing security the way we treat food security in the sense that like, if you are, make below a certain threshold of, of an income, like you, you can get food stamps. If you don't have enough money, you can get Medicaid, like healthcare and and food security is that the government does something to assure some sense of like universal access to this thing when people are like struggling to secure that for themselves. I mean, this is not to say that like food stamps or Medicaid are perfect programs, but they're there. And like, as soon as you are at a certain income level, you qualify for those services. Housing, we don't treat housing this way. And his idea is like, well, we need to universalize housing vouchers. So if you make below a certain amount, you should just be able to get subsidies from the government to pay for your housing. And that idea, I mean, it's like, it's not as if that idea has gotten much traction. And uh, it's interesting to see what other ideas um, to resolve the issue of like unaffordable housing and, and a lack of safe and accessible housing. There's many different ways that people are trying to grapple with this problem. Um, you know, rent control, kind of other measures like that. And um, the, I think the book had just really started a lot of conversations around this, um, which have been also really interesting to report on. I was really intrigued with how he wrote the book and that that, that it took years of building relationships, right? Um, the solutions that he emphasized. There's so many things, right? And I guess we'll just start with... Uh, I, you know, what, what is, what are the stories of this book? It seems like it's a really rich book in terms of it follows eight families in particular. What is the, the argument that he's making about the fact that eviction is a crisis, right? That it causes poverty um, and that, that matters, right? What, what are, what, why does that matter? How did we come to be here? How is he, what is he laying out in this book? That was 10 questions. Basically walk us through it. <laughs> yeah. So I think, certain things about this aren't necessarily like surprising on their own like in as an isolated piece of information so i mean he spent years in milwaukee um in two different communities like a black poor neighborhood and a white poor neighborhood and the white poor neighborhood was a, was a trailer park and so part of the book is devoted to the people that he lived with and around in the black poor neighborhood and then the other part is about the white poor neighborhood and the problems that people were dealing with are very similar because basically both groups of people are living in very expensive and substandard housing and they're unable to keep up with rent usually because other emergencies happen or the land the landlord jacks up the rent and you know then they can't pay and the eviction starts and another problem is that very many of the people that he spent time with, they would run into situations frequently where they couldn't pay all of the rent and they would fall behind. And as they fell behind, but continued to still pay the landlord something, they kind of relinquished all claims for the landlord to provide safe housing for them. So because they were at the mercy of, of the landlord to not be evicted, they then had to deal with living in really substandard housing. And the landlords knew this and they kind of capitalized on it. And the interesting thing too, is that the book doesn't just present all of this from the perspective of the tenants. A huge chunk of it is dedicated to the landlords themselves. And these aren't big corporate entities. The landlord that he focuses on, focuses on in the black neighborhood is like, 
it's like a mom and pop operation like a lady that decides to like invest in some property she goes also from that neighborhood like she um is like a small a small business owner essentially and her business is landlording and the trailer park in the trailer park part of the book um the trailer park is owned by more of like a faceless investor type but it's basically like a guy in chicago who has several trailer parks in illinois and wisconsin and so Oh, like the story builds, like, first of all, the, the important thing it does is like it, it creates a compelling narrative about just the hardship of life in unsubsidized housing in a poor neighborhood and all the things that people have to deal with and all the realities of, of their kind of financial situations and their relationships with landlords. But also like the quote unquote adversary, you know, the bad guy or whatever, like the landlords are also... I think presented in a way that's like a lot more typical than like some big faceless corporation, like tons and tons of housing, especially in low income neighborhoods is owned by like smaller operators. So to get a glimpse, I think like the book was powerful because it was like quite detailed and fair in, in presenting all of the people in their own terms. And what's amazing is that even in the beginning, the book starts out with the landlord, with Sharina, who's a landlord in the black neighborhood. And you kind of very quickly build a lot of sympathy with her because you get a sense of her thought process, what, you know, what she deals with in her business life. You get to know her personally. But over time, you see how the fact that this person is basically, you know, they own property and they, they have access to capital and they're able to like wield this power over these people who are their renters that in the end, like, it's not like he sets out to paint her to be like a kind of a villain in the book but it's like the fact of the power dynamics between her and her tenants just make it inevitable that you see this is a process of exploitation that the landlord is like willingly going into because of the kind of profit margins that exist for uh, rental property in the poorest neighborhoods and the thing that I'm going to read for you guys later is about that like there's been a million books about public housing residents, right? There's like all kinds of research books, journalistic kind of nonfiction books that kind of present present like the quote unquote plight of the public housing residents. But I think this is like the first book of its type that's just about like non-subsidized renters. So that's what really moved me through the book is just kind of following along with these particular people's lives and the level of detail about like what people are dealing with, like the how much things cost, like how, mu how much work you have to put in to try to find an apartment when you have an eviction on your record, how your kids are affected, like how sometimes you, you're, you know, people are going, ending up in eviction court because, you know, their car broke down and they can't make the rent. Like all of these details, I think, um, for people who like organize in um, poor communities, especially like none of this is going to be new. But I think it really kind of raised the general public's awareness and education around these issues. Um, and I think moved the the conversation around eviction away from just like, well, this is just like people not paying their rent. And this is like what happens when you don't pay your rent. This is so interesting because we actually interviewed Angela Davis a couple weeks ago about Marx's capital and a bunch of and and talked a lot about how we live in our, our political economy is is not just sort of like a brick and mortar set of this is capitalism is a bit it means businesses it means money but it's that a set of relationships that builds in the ability 
and dependency on exploitation. And so a lot of what you're saying, I feel like goes really well with that conversation. Um, and that it seems like it's less about the eviction crisis is is fueled by greed, although I think that's the thing I want. I, when we talk about Pangea and things like that, like I think, of course, greed is at play, and that, but it's not so much about that we need to limit evil people uh, to being landlords and more about the fact that housing, everyone needs housing um, and that you know, there's this this commonly taught in financial literacy programs. They say never spend more than 30% of your income on rent. Um, and as if that's like a decision that people can actually make. Whereas what we see is that like housing is extremely expensive. And I think I saw from a summary of this book that only one in four people who qualify for public housing are actually able to get into public housing because of all the things you're mentioning and alluding to about how corrupt and mismanaged and all this stuff is. I know for me, a lot of how I was taught or like heard about the housing crisis as someone who sort of came into adulthood in 2008 was also through mortgages and home ownership, right? Um, and that this is is framing the thing that affects the majority, the most of the population. Anyways, I'm rambling. Um, and I, I guess I, I'm curious what your thoughts are about who you think, this book has changed a lot of conversation, but who do you think it was, uh, whose understanding was it focused on? Um, you know, uh, I saw like Bill Gates would like has like a well, there was like a quote about like how Bill Gates was photographed reading it and or maybe it was Bill Clinton, one of the rich white men of our time. And they, they, like all <laughs> these people were reading it. And I guess, do you think that was his goal was to get it in the hands of policymakers, of journalists? What is it for poor people? Like who who do you think um, has been transformed by this book? I think that like definitely the people who are living these realities they don't need a book to tell them what's going on i think that the book was was meant to make visible a problem that's been there for a really long time but really hasn't been talked about and also and i think i will have this perspective because of his subsequent work after this book came out and what the eviction lab is sort of focused on now but i think we can't have a conversation about affordable housing without having a conversation about landlord profit. So the after this book was published, um, Desmond and uh, an, uh, another professor who's at MIT, they kind of have co-published an article um, about the, the actual, like how much profit goes in, comes out of poor neighborhoods um, for landlords. So there's a common misconception that housing in poor neighborhoods is cheap and that's completely not correct like housing in the, some of the poorest neighborhoods in chicago is gonna cost nearly the same as in some of the wealthier ones like whether you're like it, a, like a one-bedroom apartment in i don't know you know austin or south shore it's gonna be between like you know seven and nine hundred dollars uh, probably actually not even seven anymore. It'll definitely not be below like $800 and it'll be up to like maybe $1,000. And maybe in, I don't know, in Lakeview, that same that same one bedroom apartment might be like uh, $1,500 or something. But basically the, the, the spread is only like a few hundred dollars. But the income of the people that are living in the first neighborhood might be tens of thousands of dollars the median income might be tens of thousands of dollars below those who live in the richer neighborhood. So the I think this work was definitely meant to like highlight a problem for policymakers, especially since the last bit of the book is about these possible solutions that are kind of policy solutions. 
but I think it was also for a general audience. I mean, it's not an alienating read at all. Like, it's not it's not a book that's kind of dense and academic. Uh, it's it's very much like, you know, a, like a very long good piece of journalism. So, and it's no wonder that you know journalists is called journalism is called like sociology light. <laughs> it's 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 definitely um, very accessible and approachable. So yeah, I. Um, I think the most important thing about it and the contribution it's making is I feel like it's pushing a conversation towards like talking about landlords, which we really haven't in a probably since like the 50s. Well, we definitely I want to get back to the landlord conversation because I think that is important. But I'm also thinking about how so many of the stories that I read about when it comes to like housing issues and, and evictions tend to be about women and particularly black women um, and, and single moms with with children. Does the author talk about this huge impact on women in particular or does he address it more broadly, like with a focus on class? No, it's definitely he definitely I mean, I, I think he pretty much started the conversation about eviction affecting black women at the same rate as mass incarceration affects black men. Something like uh, I think in Milwaukee, it's like one in five black women would be it is somehow affected by eviction in their lifetimes or maybe even one in four so it's definitely it's it's not just a class problem it's also very much a, ra a race problem especially in in bigger cities at one point i mean one of the people one of the households he profiles their situation is that like one of them has an eviction on their record i think at least one and another one has a criminal record so basically like their their options for housing are like nearly non-existent and they go literally they try to get like dozens and dozens of apartments before they find a place that's like significantly worse than the place that they lived in that they got evicted from so it's it's really uh you know it, it's it's really like unsustainable to not address the huge gap between the cost of housing and the like stagnating incomes and and sort of lack of access to jobs and stable living wages in poor communities and the landlords you know the typical argument that you hear is that well housing will be cheaper if there was a bigger supply of it if we build more housing then the market will kind of adjust to that and we will have lower prices on rents but i think that that those conversations are about like completely unrealistic far-off scenarios like in poor neighborhoods most housing is already built like developers it, it is very expensive to build new housing and developers don't don't drop hundreds of thousands millions of dollars to build a bunch of new housing in poor neighborhoods for a reason so people in the poorest neighborhoods where housing is like a few hundred dollars more affordable than in than in um, wealthier areas are not going to magically have like more units to choose from this is always going to be a scarce resource and while it is like you know brought, landlords are free to profiteer off of it as much as they want and it's and it, like you said it's not an issue of like people being evil or whatever but like the conditions are such that right now there's no curbs on how much you can profit off people and yes affordable housing technically is defined as like when you're not paying 30 percent of your rent but if the housing costs are amounting like 50 or 60 or 70 percent of your income you still have to live somewhere so people do pay that much in rent and then they do get evicted because they have other emergencies that happen or they lose their jobs or whatever so um i feel like the conversations around supply and demand are very often like really disconnected from the realities of the rental market and like the poorest most segregated neighborhoods
There was a, a quote that I read from an interview of Matthew Desmond where he said, landlords literally own poor communities. They decide who gets to live where. They choose which families to evict and which to spare. They set rents, buy property, and make or, or neglect repairs. They are major players in the urban housing market. And I guess it, it keeps coming back to this, like what feels like a built-in contradiction of like, that, that just sets up people to be exploited and to get pushed into more and more and more desperate situations. It feels like there's this, uh, or I'm hearing this sort of theme of, of where you had this moment where this book comes out and all these people, regular folks, Bill Gates apparently are reading this book that's just like the problem is that people, that housing is too expensive, people don't have the money, and these landlords, I think that's really interesting that it's pointing to a, the class of our society that is landlords. I mean, from what I've heard about this book, it seems like he focuses on this housing voucher program as sort of like this is the step forward. But or is there a call to like abolish landlords? Um, is that in it as well? It, it, where of just like why should we have people who have this power? Or does he think that if people just have a voucher that that will somehow level the playing field? Well, so I think the, his argument is that if there's if vouch if housing vouchers are treated the way that like food stamps are or Medicaid, then we could have a huger portion of the population basically uh, have access to some sort of help and we could save money in the long term too because right now another thing that happens is that the value of a voucher is calculated based on often based on an entire metropolitan area so for example in chicago how much the federal government will pay for like a one-bedroom apartment is is calculated by averaging rents in the entire city so like South Shore and the Gold Coast, and even like outside of the city in the suburbs too. So there's like this huge metropolitan area where like, you know, it, it, the prices, the rent prices are very, very variable. And in the end, it the voucher doesn't end up being enough to afford an apartment in like nicer, richer neighborhoods or whatever, but they are more than the market rent would be in some of the poorest neighborhoods. So then you have this like, kind of other adjacent economy going on where like landlords are actively recruiting people into the neighborhoods where the voucher is worth more than the rent would actually be. The landlords like that because also it's a, it, it's a guaranteed income, even though there's like more bureaucratic hassles around it. But there, he also is advocating for like a move away from these large metropolitan area calculations around the value of vouchers to like smaller areas, which the federal government is kind of piloting and doing in various cities. I think there's actually a pilot going on with this in, in Chicago as well. But I think for me, you know, all of the conversations about the solutions are gonna be stymied and very difficult for tenant advocates to win with in the political realm, in the electoral politics realm, as long as we don't have any data about the landlords. And so like, I feel like this, the, the the experience of like getting into this book and learning about eviction in general, the biggest first kind of solution that I see to the issue that seems to be like the most reasonable and necessary next thing to do is that we have to know how much profit landlords are making off of housing. And I feel like a lot of the political struggles around various types of approaches to like generating more affordable housing or making housing more affordable 
whether it's the voucher question, whether it's the um, you know rent regulation and capping how fast and how much rents can go up, all of these things like the debate around this and the, and and the kind of organizing around it would be is going to be always hindered by the fact that the landlords get to make a bunch of claims, but they never show you their money. Like you never get to see the books. So the landlord's lobby, like typical response to something like, you know, a push for rent regulation is like, well, this is going to, this is going to exacerbate the problem because then landlords are going to have to, you know, they're not going to make the money they need in order to maintain their buildings. And then that's going to just make the housing supply, the, the housing stock, like less safe and less desirable. And uh, it's going to be worse for tenants. But I mean, in the poorest neighborhoods, like housing is already not desirable and unsafe. And what Desmond and his colleagues have found in their research has been that like the amount of profit that a landlord makes off of property in the poorest neighborhoods is always bigger than the amount of profit that landlords make in richer communities. So other than like San Francisco and New York City, where, okay, if you're a landlord in like the richest part of those cities, you're going to make like a lot of profit. But other than those like very extreme cases in most of America, landlording in poor communities is way more profitable than landlording in rich ones. And and as long as we don't know how much the land, how much profit the landlords are making, I feel like it's very hard to advance like serious things to combat the problem and the landlords really don't want people to know like my experience has been that whenever i start to ask concrete questions from you know quote-unquote housing providers and landlords about their books like they never want to show they never want to show you the money like they never want to actually talk about how much profit they're making per unit in many cases like when they own buildings in some of the poorest neighborhoods, especially if they got into the game like Pangea did around 2008 during the foreclosure crisis, like they don't have mortgages on these properties anymore, oftentimes, like the, everything's paid off. So, you know, the the claim is constantly about how the costs of operating the housing are high and therefore that's what the rent needs to be. But, you know, my point is always like, well, show me the money. And obviously me, a journalist in an alt-weekly, is not really going to get much information about that usually. Unless, and even if I do, it would be very anecdotal. But I feel like this is something the government could actually demand. And there would be a big political fight about that for sure. Like if the city of Chicago said landlords have to report like on a quarterly basis or whatever, once a year, you know, how many units they own and what are their profits like then you could really start some kind of movement most likely because if you saw how much profit people are making off these units it would i mean it it, it could be like a very morally compromising thing f to be out there for landlords so right now we're kind of doomed to be in a space of moral panic because there's no data and what i i mean yeah so i'm just waiting for the day that that somebody starts you know in, in our political arena or even in the organizing sp sphere where people are like starting to seriously push for disclosure of this information. Um, landlords would argue, you know, that's their business, you know, that's a proprietary business information, but you know, it's like, they're not making like uh, software, like security software. They're not, they're not making, you know, al alternatives to meet that like require a bunch of like scientific discovery and research and development and all that stuff. These are, People are owning assets that they didn't create that ha have a worth because of things that don't really have to do much with their particular 
in you know personal investment or ingenuity this is like a, a very specific type of economy and um yeah i just think that we really don't know enough we don't have enough data about it and while we don't it's we're going to continue to have like an affordable housing crisis it really is bananas when I stop and think about that. It's just totally normal that we live in this world. It's just like, I have to give, everyone assumes 30%. Like that, that is just like, you're doing great if you're only spending 30% of your money on this necessity to a person that didn't most likely build the house. Like they just, it's their work is just that they own it. Right. Um, and I'm thinking about, yeah, like houses like mine that, don't have a ton of repairs that I'm seeing being made every year and the ones that do aren't done very well. Um, and I'm just like, how does this justify the amount of money that I'm paying plus all of these other people? Anyway, so I'm just, it's outrageous. And like, what would you do if you knew that for whatever your rent is, that like 80% of that was profit? Right. You know, like, yeah. because it's always so vague it's always so vague when they talk about the cost of maintaining the housing and all of the and the property taxes and all the stuff it's it's never specific it's never concrete and our elected officials are never demanding concrete answers to this problem and i'm sure that if like the city of chicago decided to have some kind of like you know requirement to report you know having landlords like be registered all of their properties being tracked and have like reporting about about their profits on a regular basis there would be like a million lawsuits around this there would there would these are there would be like tons of court battles to fight before they would reveal that information the, i've been following since the pandemic started i've been following these uh you know various tenant kind of advocacy side things like rent control fight like development for all ordinance like all of these um just cause eviction like all of these different pieces of the organizing work um around tenants rights and protections and kind of affordable housing but i've also got keeping track of like what the landlords are saying and how they've been responding to the pandemic and you know there's this conversation happening around like this impending wave of evictions once the moratoriums are lifted and landlords can once again um evict because of non-payment of rent and on the landlord side there's like this constant conversation about how you know they're fi they're fighting the moratorium they're fighting the rent control they're fighting the residential landlord tenant ordinance or the tenant landlord ordinance that's the cook county just passed like you know every single thing that is in any way favorable to tenants of course they're gonna they're gonna fight it but one of the like constant refrains through this pandemic has been about how like housing providers are unable to maintain their properties because people are not paying rent and they're really struggling. But honestly, I will be very interested to see as this kind of uh, wave of evictions that surely to come hits, like, are we going to see a wave of bankruptcies and foreclosures for landlords? I seriously doubt it. Because what they say amongst themselves is about how their vacancies are are continuing to be very low. They're turning apartments around very fast when people do leave. Something I'm thinking about is rent control. Like, why don't we have rent control in Chicago? And I know, like, shout out to Lift the Ban for doing the work, like, to make to try to make that happen. But I definitely want to hear your thoughts on, like, who we're up against in that fight. Yeah, so the reason why we don't have rent control in Chicago is because the state of Illinois passed a ban on any kind of rent regulation in the 90s. 
back then, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, which is kind of this ultra-conservative, free-market-type lobbying group, pushed very hard to um, create rent control bans throughout the country in state legislatures. So rent control as like a federal policy only existed here very briefly, like for during World War II and also in the early 70s uh, under Nixon, actually, because of like out of control inflation. But ALEC got its start around that time as well, because they saw the Nixon White House as having like capitulated on a bunch of conservative proce- uh, uh, conservative promises, not just because of like their price controls at the time, but also, you know, Nixon started the EPA and sort of a bunch of other did a bunch of other things that like hardcore conservative Republicans were very disappointed about. So seeing like the federal government as not a reliable ally on conservative issues, the American Legislative Exchange Council was formed. It was actually founded by. Uh, somebody from, uh, I think maybe a former state senator or something from Illinois, but they their idea was like, okay, we can't get stuff down on a federal level. We'll just lobby state legislatures to pass what we want. And the way that ALEC works is that it membership in ALEC for state legislators is like very, very cheap. But then special interest groups can become members of ALEC, ALEC and it's like a very high price tag. And then ALEC hosts these like junkets and conferences where they bring together these state legislatures on all expenses paid trips with these special interest groups and the legislators leave these like beautiful getaways in exotic locations oftentimes with like readily written legislation in hand that they can introduce in their state houses so in the 90s one of the one of the key issues that Alec was trying to get passed and as many states as possible was the the prohibition on any kind of rent regulation and at the time like in the 80s there were some municipalities that had passed various forms of rent control there was some activity on this front in around boston around washington dc in, in california and so in illinois though there wasn't any kind of movement for rent control in the 90s there wasn't nothing in particular was going on around this issue but the state house was controlled by Republicans. There was like two legislative sessions where the Republicans were in control of both houses. And in that window of time, they they passed this Rent Control Preemption Act, which is like a very, very short piece of legislation. There was hardly any debate about it. At the time, Jan Schakowsky was in the state house and she was one of the only people who was like, if this isn't an issue, why are we even doing legislation about this? Um, Some other people had a problem with it because they were like, well, this is telling local governments they can't establish any kind of regulation on rents. This seems kind of against the entire Republican ethos of like local control. But nevertheless, this thing (laughs) sailed through uh, in 97 and, and, and it overrides what's called home rule powers. So a lot of laws in Illinois like don't apply to Chicago and, and Cook County because they're big enough municipalities where they have something called home rule which allows them to like yeah m- make their own laws and kind of not not be subject to some of the state legislation but this thing overrides home rule so because of this uh there hasn't we haven't been able to have a conversation about rent control in the city or county because it, you know it would just be like immediately shut down by this by this um Rent Control Preemption Act. So now, Lift the Ban started organizing a few years ago to just repeal the Rent Control Preemption Act. That was their first and like 
only message in the beginning. Will Gazzardi um, sponsored the legislation to repeal it. And, you know, the, the real estate lobby and the landlord lobby has been fighting tooth and nail to not have it repealed. Because if it is repealed, then in a place like Chicago, the city council could actually start having some conversation about how can we regulate rent. So um, what's being proposed is just a rule about how fast rent can go up every year. So basically, like, rent can't increase more than the rate of inflation. That's that's the idea. It's like a very timid, very tame thing. It doesn't fix the fact that it costs $900 to rent a studio in Austin. You know, like, it, does, that, that, that it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily fix that, but it would potentially prevent that studio from becoming $200 more expensive the next year. It's like harm reduction. Yeah, it's exactly. And there has been also like another bill that's been proposed in the state house and um, in the state Senate that would actually establish uh, like rent control throughout the state, because now the Lift to Ban coalition has grown a lot and includes a lot of downstate folks where it's poor white communities, where there's a lot of trailer parks. And the way that trailer parks work is like extremely exploitative because when you buy a mobile home, you buy the home, but it's not actually mobile. And you then rent the land underneath the trailer. And because you can't move your home, like the owners of the trailer parks have, they, they can raise rents and do whatever they want because you're basically like a captive market. And you, I don't know, the the homes may cost like five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, but people aren't in a position to like sell them easily or leave or move them to another place piece of land. So some of the price gouging and and rent increases in um, in trailer parks are like astro like beyond what we can even imagine in terms of like this issue in urban context. Like you know, there's like two hundred percent rent increases sometimes year over year. So. That's why the downstate folks are, a lot of downstate um, organizations have kind of joined this fight as well. So, yeah, it's, uh, looks like now, actually, they just, this this week, they moved the um, rent control, um, the, the repeal of the Rent Control Preemption Act out of committee in the state house, um, which, you know, gives it a shot to actually go forward now. It's been stuck in committee for like three years, I think. I'm really grateful that you talked about how it, this looks in places outside of cities. Um, I think that's really important. And um, I'm, I'm just feeling really angry and a little bit overwhelmed right now. Uh, but I, and, I, and I'm going to add some more gasoline to that because I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> you can take some time to talk, us, talk to us about Pangea. So if folks don't know, Maya has written some incredible pieces talking about Pangea. And earlier you talked about how this book talks about landlords, but uh, pushes us past the sort of like the evil conglomerate corporate landlord that we might have in our head to look at the mom and pops and how they are also a part of a problem and are profiting off of poverty. But Pangea is one of the evil corporate massive things. And um, and I, I mean, I think they, I don't know if they're self-described as an apartment empire or what, but I, I see that a lot. Uh, I mean, they're building this massive, they're, they're, they're taking over whole neighborhoods. Um, can you talk a little bit more about Pangea and how it fits into all of this? Um, and I think anything you can say about how it connects to courts and like police as well, what we're seeing here in Chicago. Yeah. So uh, in, in many ways, I think Pangea is actually representative of like the future of landlording in poor communities if nothing changes and things keep developing as they are. So this book evicted he did most of the research actually like before 
the foreclosure crisis and right at the beginning. So this is like a pre-recession book. So some of these landlords that he profiles, like I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't make it out of the recession and the property that they owned are now owned by these bigger conglomerates like Pangea. So, I mean, Pangea is not, it's not technically a conglomerate, it's just one company, but how, how they came to be was uh, the founders of the company made a bunch of money in payday lending in the early 2000s. They, uh, the founder, Al Goldstein, was also the founder of CashNet USA, which was like one of the first online payday lenders and a very successful one. So, and then their payday lending business got bought out by like a national chain and they sold it in 2006. So right before the market collapse, they were just like, they had made an incre like an incredibly profitable sale of this business to a publicly traded corporation. So as the housing market collapses, these guys who are literally just like guys in their 20s, uh, Chicago guys from in their 20s, find themselves like awash in cash. And they see that there's an opportunity in the housing market because the foreclosure crisis hit obviously single family homeowners very hard, but also smaller apartment holders and also community financial institutions and, and banks. So you have kind of this wave of foreclosure in apartment buildings that are maybe between like four and 50 units. It, this is not a segment of the market that's very interesting, especially during the recession to like bigger financial institutions. And meanwhile, the kind of banks that used to finance people's mortgages to like buy a building like that and you know, become a landlord, those, those little banks are like wiped out and they're not bailed out. So the, the, these kinds of smaller apartment buildings, they're basically up for grabs for anyone who has just cash to buy them outright. And they're being sold, you know, in huge, like foreclosed property at the time was being just sold in like, you know, you could buy like a portfolio of foreclosed property for next to nothing and get like, tons of buildings in there in various states of dilapidation. Um, oftentimes these apartment buildings may have been owned by like a mom and pop operator in the neighborhood or just a smaller operator who may not have lived there, but uh, still work with the local financial institution. So just as an example, like in South Shore, which is a neighborhood on the South side of Chicago, black neighborhood uh, used to be like a very middle-class neighborhood until like the, the nine, late mid to late 90s basically and then there was a big housing bubble there before the, the, the 2008 recession so up until the recession there were tons of well there was like a bunch of local landlords who were like black folks who lived in the community but there were also a bunch of like immigrant croatians who owned property in south shore but um in both cases shore bank which was like the former south shore bank was the primary financer for people who were doing landlording in South Shore. And after they collapsed and all these little guys went into foreclosure, the Pangea guys who had a ton of money were able to buy up a ton of ton, a ton of apartment buildings there. And they did gut rehab and they did, um, well, I think they did a lot more cosmetic rehab than gut rehab, but they basically fixed the building up, buildings up and, you know, put, put new tenants in them. But the model that they're operating on is very different from um, a small landlord in a lot of ways because they're in a volume business and the, because they're able to operate at scale, 
they're able to get tennis much quicker they are have like a much more streamlined process for getting people in and out of the building for doing maintenance so they essentially like become like this huge player in the low-income housing market and unsubsidized low-income housing market in Chicago and because of I mean in some areas in the city they own like most of the apartment buildings on the block so the, the the way that this connects with eviction court is that they kind of pioneered this way of using eviction court Cook County eviction court in order to um, shore up their collections so typically for a small landlord it's a huge hassle to go to eviction court because filing in Cook County is like $400 it's very expensive to file a case if you really want to like you know make sure that you're gonna win like most of the time landlords win anyway but most landlords also have lawyers so you know you got to hire a lawyer you have court fees and if you have like one or two units when you've already had somebody behind on the rent several months like yeah that that becomes like a big expense but for Pangea they just had they just got in-house lawyers and what they would do is like as soon as somebody's behind on the rent they take them to eviction court but what they do there is they just get the person to commit to like a to what's called a pay and stay agreement. So the person gives up their right to have a trial in court and they agree that they'll make uh, payments on the their overdue past due rent. And so then every single month they have to not only like make their first month's rent, you know, first day of the month they have to pay their rent. But then a few weeks later, they also have to pay towards their arrears and most people are not able to keep up with this payment plan because if they're behind on $850 worth of rent because they lost their job, the next month they're not magically going to have $850 worth of rent and then $400 more to put towards the back rent. But because they got into the pay and stay deal, once they fall behind, then Pangea can just get an eviction order from the judge. They don't have to argue anything. There doesn't need to be a trial. Like it's all, it's like a plea deal basically. So um, Pangea's lawyers were like kind of like pioneers in this way of using eviction court. And now one of them, like the, the original lawyer that worked for them, started his own eviction law firm and lots of other landlords work with them. So on the one hand, tenant advocates see them much more favorably uh, because they are willing to make deals with tenants. They're not just gung-ho about getting them out of the apartments once they're in eviction court. But on the other hand, they filed before the pandemic, they were filing like a thousand cases a year on 7,500 uh, units in the city. So that's like, you know, something like a sixth to a seventh of your, of your, of your entire tenant base that you're taking to court, which then creates a whole class of people who have an eviction on their record, which then makes it very hard for those people to rent, even if they're never actually evicted in the end, the, the, the filing still counts against them which further narrows their housing options, which then creates a more trapped clientele base for Pangea and other landlords in the poorest neighborhoods. Ooh, I just like quickly want to name that you are one of my favorite journalists in the city, not only because of your coverage of our movement work in like super accountable ways. So thank you for that. But also for your critical coverage of, of things in the city, things that the city is trying to hide from us. And I mean, you know, something that comes to my mind right away for me is your is your coverage of the lockout in Rogers Park this past year where ex-cops were attempting to evict a tenant at gunpoint um, or your more recent coverage where you found out eviction court had gone unrecorded for like six months um, so like what do you see happening here and how 
one, how, what, what do you see happening here? And two, how have you seen the housing crisis uh, and, of course, the subsequent housing justice movement change, if at all, in the last year with everything that's happening during the pandemic? So many of the legal protections that you might have, you're never going to exercise because you're already in a situation where you're afraid to like, you're, you're afraid to take the landlord to task over anything. And especially if you have kids, especially if you ha already have eviction on your record, especially if you have a low credit score, you know, like you just, you're not in a position to exercise a lot of the rights that you do have. So um, the thing that I'm seeing, I guess, in conjunction with the pandemic is uh, this kind of broader movement to form tenants unions. And it does seem a little bit, you know, it does seem a little bit neighborhood specific. So I feel like the, the, the groups that are doing a lot of tenant unionizing right now are sort of these like lefty, mostly white led organizations in kind of more gentrifying neighborhoods, which like, you know, that not, not necessarily to say there's anything wrong with that, but um, I think that more conversations around tenant unions and more like news about tenant unions forming is, you know, I would assume that it would make more people curious about the idea and um, and explore it in, in different ways. But yeah, I just I don't want to be I don't want to poo poo tenants unions or say that they're useless or whatever. I think any kind of collective action and collective bargaining is always effective uh, or, or it's 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 better than so trying to solve problems as an individual. But uh I mean, to be honest, I don't I don't see that there's going to be like massive shifts in this landscape um, and especially not while we have really no idea, like, what are the financial realities of the landlording business? Sorry to be <laughs> negative. <laughs> no, no. I mean, um, I think it's it's the. Uh, I believe in organizing, right? Like obviously, and 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 in building power and in building relationships with our neighbors and our communities that are built around um, an agreement that things are not okay and a decision and a commitment to taking action together. I think those are steps in in the right direction. Um, I, I believe in cop watching, right, and in doing that as neighbors for each other. But I also know the limits of of that. Um, and that's why we need these like defund the police calls, right? These big, and, and I think that's um, part of what's been so interesting about this conversation is that, yeah, we're, we're it's this massive issue. Um, and I'm always thinking about what is the horizon? And I, I love how much we have talked about landlords. And I think that is something like, I remember when the pandemic first started, there was like a video of a land of a landlady who um, her tenant was uh, her tenant had found a video of her on TikTok or Instagram um, mocking her because she, you know, she couldn't have any work all of a sudden uh, and was late with her rent. And so the landlord was taking her packages. And so the landlord had like made a, a funny video of like holding all of her packages. Um, and just this, I, I, yeah, I know a lot of folks that have hated landlords for a long time, but there's something in the air. And I think it's really important that we're having this conversation about like what, um, why does this relationship exist with with our ability to literally like live in a building and the people who own that? This book is helping us see it in a more radical way. Even if it doesn't have the most radical solutions at the end, I think it is getting at the relationships of poverty um, as opposed to just the the 
I don't know if thens. Okay. Okay. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I think. Look, I Chicago never see never ceases to like amaze me with the kind of potency and creativity of its organizing. So, you know, like there's definitely. I mean, there's people who've been working on these issues and trying to get better protections and better housing for folks for years. I feel like definitely the pandemic has helped them have more of a moment, I think, because the severity of the crisis was just like really laid bare. I'm just a chronicler, you know, like I just like I'm I've, I'm like creating some kind of archive about what's happening in the city right now. And what I do see is that there's like more different types of thinking and creative organizing and collective action happening among tenants than like five years ago, you know? So it's that that's an interesting thing to observe and it's a dynamic process and that can't be bad. Tenants are, under, I think, increasingly understanding themselves as like people with a common shared problem and that they could possibly find solutions for it if they, if they work together. Um, because I think poverty for a lot of people is like an extremely isolating experience. And the way that power structures function around uh, poor people in poor communities is that it like constantly makes you feel like your problems are just your own and that the only solutions are individual ones. So, you know, I feel like this entire pandemic experience has in not just in the realm of housing, but in a lot of different uh, realms has catalyzed a kind of uh, thinking towards moving and working collectively more um and on the other hand you know like i'm not seeing like a, anything new or different from the landlord corner of things so yeah you know i'll just i'll be interested to see if like the kind of groundswell of creativity among tenants is going to lead to like new and interesting policies or movements um or whether you know the kind of same old same old routine from the landlords is is still gonna win the day so i'll be watching i just want to say that i'm not i'm not trying to say that like all landlords are 100 percent full of shit like i'm not at all saying that it's easy to do that as a job or that it's cheap to provide decent housing or that people don't have nightmare tenants because they definitely do like all the kind of problems that landlords have are definitely real, but it's those are problems that come part and parcel with deciding to do a certain job and run a certain kind of business, whereas like everybody has to live somewhere. Um, and one thing that uh, I guess the, the, the other piece of this, besides just the fact that like housing is so expensive and, you know, there's all kinds of profiteering happening. There's also the issue of the, you know, of like stagnating wages. So especially when it comes to like developing new housing and the cost that, you know, the costs of rent when somebody, when a developer does have to do like a huge rehab or build, build a whole new building from scratch. Like on the other side of this, there's like low wage labor. And so, um, you know, I don't expect this to happen, but I always wonder about it. Like how come landlords aren't on the front lines of like, fight for 15 and other kind of like you know movements to increase minimum wage and push for like living incomes for people because that is like the, their most that that is the reason why they're having has they're having like issues with their tenant base so um so yeah so since most since most evictions come about as a result of like people 
not being able to pay the rent, you know, part of the reason they can't pay the rent is because they're not getting paid enough. So, you know, I, uh, I also feel like I, the, the, the blame for the crisis is not entirely with the landlords, but, um, yeah, I feel like the, the, the solutions are going to come from organized tenant work for sure. Yeah. I'm really glad that you said that. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I am going to text my brother who just became a landlord and we, we've been talking about the minimum wage and I'm just like, you should be fighting harder than I am because you directly <laughs> depend on this being real. Um, yeah, I mean, I so many questions. So I have so many more questions and things, but we'll we'll save it for hopefully one day we can actually like link up again. Um, and I again, thank you for for joining us. Thank you for all of your brilliant work on this. If again, please readers go and check out the Chicago Reader. Everything that Maya writes, um, not only on on housing issues, but also that you've created this really wonderful archive documenting the movement for abolition in Chicago that I am really grateful for. Um, and so there's there's a large archive to dig into and then to, to follow your work. I highly recommend to anyone listening. And I'm going to ask you to close us out with a favorite passage from, again, the book is Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Thanks. Yeah. And actually, before I, before I dive into this reading, I do want to say one more thing that I think is really important that I got from Matt's work and from not just his book, but his article, uh, like his other published articles as well, which is that like people have to understand that landlording as a business, there's like two types of landlords. There's landlords who, uh, and usually these are the mom and pop type of folks. There's landlords who own property and their goal is to eventually sell the property and that's their nest egg. So maybe they invested their surplus income into buying a piece of property to rent it out. Maybe that's what they're banking on for their retirement funds, whatever. But those kinds of landlords, their principal concern is to have tenants who are like reliable and who will live in their unit for a long time and take care of their assets. So especially mom and pop landlords in wealthier communities or in gentrifying communities, Th that that may be the category that they're a part of and those people care more about the long-term like you know stability and kind of welfare of their of their investment than they do about like squeezing as much profit as possible out of their tenants they may even have lower rents because they just want a reliable person in there for as long as possible and the but the other type of landlord and this is the kind of landlording that happens in poor communities is you don't care about the 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 price of your asset. I mean, a lot of people talk about landlords, like in South Shore, especially like this is just a land grab. These are people that are coming in, they want to buy all this property to then flip it. They're waiting for the Obama Center to come, blah, blah, blah. There's always landlords in poor communities. Most property, like Desmond says, is like owned by landlords. And they're in, in the poorest neighborhoods, like the, the name of the game is not the increased value of the asset over time. It's the steady, uh, access to rents and it's the how much profit you can make over time from a constant influx of rent so the less you spend on your property the more profit you will make and there's because housing markets are neighborhood based and very segregated there's usually a never-ending stream of possible renters that you could be dealing with so just you know when we have a conversation about landlords i think it's really important to understand those distinctions and most of where the harm is happening is in the sector of the market where it's landlords in poor neighborhoods that have access to a captive market and so 
the passage I'm going to read, it, it deals with this, actually. Um, it talks, this is focusing on um, the relationship between Doreen, who is a, a black woman who's a renter in, in the poor black neighborhood that he lived in, and Sharina, her landlord, who's also a black woman, um, and she owns like several properties in that neighborhood. And, you know, got into it as, as kind of her own, her own business. After two months without a working bathtub or sink and with a barely working toilet, Doreen decided to call a plumber herself. Having paid for a plumber the first time things got stopped up, Sharina was not keen to do so again. And after what happened at 32nd Street, Doreen knew better than to call a building inspector. The plumber charged $150 to snake out the pipes. He concluded that the plumbing system was old and vulnerable and advised Doreen to catch everything she could from going down the sink. The first thing Doreen did after the man left was to run a hot bath and soak in it for an hour. Doreen decided to deduct the $150 from her rent. When Sharina responded by saying that would earn her an eviction notice, Doreen went ahead and withheld all of her rent. If she was going to get evicted, she might as well save her money and put it towards the next move. It was a common strategy among cash-strapped renters. Because the rent took almost all of their paycheck, Families sometimes had to initiate a necessary eviction that allowed them to save enough money to move to another place. One landlord's loss was another's gain. If Doreen had to move, she knew she wouldn't be able to find a much cheaper place, especially for three adults and five children. At the time, medium rent for two-bedroom apartment in Milwaukee was $600. 10% of units rented at or below $480, and 10% rented at or above $750. A mere $270 separated some of the cheapest units in the city from some of the most expensive. That meant that rent is in some of the worst neighborhoods was not drastically cheaper than rent in much better areas. For example, in the city's poorest neighborhoods, where at least 40% of families live below the poverty line, median rent for a two-bedroom apartment was only $50 less than the citywide median. Sharina put it like this, a two-bedroom is a two-bedroom is a two-bedroom. This had long been the case. When tenants began appearing in New York City in the mid-1800s, rent in the worst slums was 30% higher than in uptown. In the 1920s and 30s, rent for dilapidated housing in the black ghettos of Milwaukee and Philadelphia and other northern cities exceeded that for better housing in white neighborhoods. As late as 1960, rent in major cities with higher, was higher for blacks than for whites in similar accommodations. The poor did not crowd into slums because of cheap housing. They were there, and this was especially true of the black poor, simply because they were allowed to be. Landlords at the bottom of the market generally did not lower rents to meet demand and avoid the cost of all those missed payments and evictions. There were costs to avoiding those costs too. For many landlords, it was cheaper to deal with the expense of eviction than to maintain their properties. It was possible to skip on maintenance if tenants had per were perpetually behind and many poor ten tenants would be perpetually behind because their rent was too high. Tenants able to pay their rent in full each month could take advantage of legal protections designed to keep their housing safe and decent. Not only could they summon a building inspector without fear of eviction, but they also had the right to withhold rent until certain repairs were made. But when tenants fell behind, these protections dissolved. Tenants in arrears were barred from withholding or escrowing rent and they tempted eviction if they filed a report with the building inspector. It was not that low-income renters didn't know their rights, they just knew that those rights would cost them. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about a book that has shaped their organizing work. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based abolitionists, cultural workers, and cat mamas who love nerding out on books and creating spark notes for our movements. Production this season is by Benji Russellberg. Intro music is by David Ellis with production by Ari Mejia and social media support from Alicia Camel. If you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And if you like our podcasts, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help widen our reach. Financial support for the production of this podcast season is thanks to the Field Foundation of Illinois and our amazing Patreon subscribers. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thelitreview. Keep reading.